Okay, gang, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read from us, from Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 635 in the Pewback Bibles, if you have those in front of you, if you want to open your phone or look at your iPad. If you don't have a Bible, please take these Bibles that are in your chairs. They're for you. They're our gift to you. We've been talking, you'll remember, about the positive and negative aspects of the gospel. We've been talking about the aspects of God telling us what to put on, our new identity in Jesus, and also what we are to put off, those aspects of our life that we are to put off in light of our new identity in Christ. And when you come to this passage, it's a very in-your-face, raw, hard passage, but it's one that we desperately need. So let me read it for us. Give your attention to God's Word, Ephesians chapter 5. I'll read from verses 3 to verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take this passage and would you open it up for us so that we can be changed by your gospel. Oh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The diamonds of Sierra Leone have spread beauty across the world. The diamonds that are probably on many of your fingers, ladies, are diamonds that are from this West African country. The diamonds that you see at Jarrett. Oh, he went to Jarrett. The diamonds you see at Moody's in Utica Square. Those diamonds probably came from Sierra Leone, from the mines of Sierra Leone. The diamonds of Sierra Leone have spread beauty across the world. But those same diamonds have also spread slavery across the world. Those those same diamonds have also caused thousands upon thousands of children to be enslaved into a vicious cycle in industry where they work without pay or maybe for a dollar, if they're lucky, a day. Over years of their life, under overlords telling them what to and what to not do the diamond industry though it has spread beauty across the world you know what else it spread across the world it has spread organized crime it has spread slavery unlike any other single industry in the world except sex The exploitation of children because of sexuality is far worse than the exploitation of children due to the diamond mines in Sierra Leone. And the church is really confused about that. Because on the one hand, is sex the forbidden fruit? Like those of you who aren't married yet, like you think about it a lot. I know, I was there. 
It's the forbidden fruit. Or is it God's gracious gift to humanity to extend his glory within the confines of marriage? Is sex this beautiful gift that God has provided for us? Or is it just a matter of weekend, casual recreation? Why is it that when you listen to Christian radio, they play these incredibly emotional and romantic songs crooned to God? If sex is good, but you never actually hear romantic stories or songs on the radio that talk about our affection for the opposite sex, even though that's equally as beautiful and good. But yet on the secular radio, you hear this beautiful ballad about hold me in your arms forever, which has a beautiful picture of what Christian love is within the confines of marriage. But yet also on MTV, you see them on the beach in Panama City where it's like a free-for-all. It's disgusting. Right? What it, and the church is very confused. You get two different messages. Oh, yes, sex is good. But yet, you know what? More children are enslaved in the sex industry they're enslaved in any other industry in the history of the world. What gives? When Paul zeroes in on these lists of prohibitions, he zeroes in first on sexual immorality. And I'm just going to talk brass tacks with you this morning about what it is, what it isn't, and how do we get out of it? Because more of you than you would think are in it, and you're not alone, by the way. You know, the temperature's lowered today. Can you feel it? It's a little colder because I'm talking about sex. So you're gonna, the temperature's going to rise, and it'll be better in about 20 minutes. All right, so what is, there are three points I want to make about sex this morning. The first point I want to make about sex, and I'm just going to pull it out of this text. I'm just going to s- pull it out. It is, number one, that sex is good, and it was created by God to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. That's the first point. Sex is good, and it was meant to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. Let's say that you took a piece of Banksy artwork. You know, Banksy, the artist that you saw in the video earlier. Um, or better yet, for the illustration, let's say that you took Leonardo da, Vinci, da, Vinci, uh, da Vinci's um, Mona Lisa. And you put in, in, let's say the Louvre of Paris gave you the Mona Lisa. Gave it to you. And you were to take this beautiful piece of art and you were to, Stick it in your front yard to show off for the world. What would happen? Well, people would drive by and say, oh, that's beautiful. That's the Mona Lisa. But then the rain would come, and then it would make the paint smear, and it would destroy what is a priceless artifact. That oftentimes is the way we think of sex in the church. We think that sex is this good gift. It's wonderful. But we misapply it, and we end up smearing its beautiful God-intended purposes. And when you think about it, it is illogical and it's asinine. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to treat something so priceless in that way. And those of you, those of you who have had or are having sex outside of marriage know what this is like. Because you know the pain of breaking up with somebody with whom you have had that kind of intimacy. It's unlike anything else because sex is meant to be enjoyed. It's God's great gift given to us. Which takes us to the second point. That sex is as much social as it is physical. It is as much social as it is physical. Let me illustrate it for you. In in Genesis chapter 3, you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. 
They were completely vulnerable with each other, absolutely vulnerable in every way before each other and before the Lord. There was no shame. That was the way God intended us to be. And one of the pictures that he gives us of the glory of his gospel breaking through is when you're able to experience that together with your husband or your wife in marital intimacy. That you're naked and unashamed. And what's required for that to happen is this great sense of trust. Which when that's spoiled, oh, you know, it is so hard to get that back. St. Augustine knew this. St. Augustine, as many of you know, is the 5th century church father. He was born in uh, 354. He died in 430. St. Augustine, you may not know, before he became a Christian, was actually a, 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 um, a very promiscuous man. He was brilliant, but he was also very promiscuous. And he had a woman with whom he lived for many, many years. He had a son with her, and his son's name was Adiodatus. And when Augustine became a Christian, he knew that he was in this relationship with this woman, and he knew that even though he had a son, that he had to break this relationship off. And he said it was like having his arm leveraged off his body, ripped from his side for him to break that relationship off because he knew, he knew that his physical relationship with this woman had far outpaced and preceded his relational intimacy. Physical union is the consummation of relational intimacy. And if you get those two confused, people get hurt. And whenever you abuse a good gift that God has given us, the effects are always more disproportionate to the easy abuse of it. In other words, the effects of disobedience in regards to sex is always far greater than you can imagine. Now, the, the church tends to harp on this, and they tend at this point in sermons to make you feel really guilty. That's not what we're going after today. It, we're just stating a simple fact. It is true that the effects of the abuse of God's good gifts, like sexuality, outside of the confines of marriage, wreak far more havoc than you can ever, ever imagine. We, um, we know this because, you know, Many, many of us in this room struggle with lust. What is lust? Lust is the deformation of sex, the deformation of sex, precisely because it doesn't bring us closer with others, it actually cuts us off from others. The potential of being known, which exists in sex within the confines of marriage, draws you toward your spouse. You know, the old word for sexuality, or for sexual intimacy, was the old word, the conjugal act. Isn't that great? The conjugal act. Because what it means is that you are conjoined, you're joined together. And God created sex not merely for your pleasure, although yes, he did create it for that reason, and that's a good reason. And not merely for children, although that is a great reason, and it is one of his purposes, but he created it first and foremost to dispel your loneliness and isolation and to provide the comfort and care of it to another person. To be giving of yourself for them as a picture of Christ's self-giving love for his church. 
And whenever you are struggling with lust, lust is so deforming because it cuts you off from other people. It's not, it's not the physical aspect of lust that is so dangerous. It is dangerous, but the worst part about it is how it cuts you off socially and relationally from other people. That's why Jesus said that sexual sin is not just committing adultery, but anybody who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery in the heart. If I could say it this way, lust is sex for a party of one. It's moving away from another and towards self-gratification. Lust is, in this way, like gluttony. You know, a glutton will tell you that the more they eat, the less satisfied they become with a simple meal. She becomes dissatisfied with the quality or the quantity of food. And so she eats more and she becomes less satisfied and she gets into this vicious cycle. And slavery to food looks like freedom. And freedom feels like slavery to food. She moves deeper and deeper into this maze of self-gratification. Frederick Buechner once said that at the roots of At its root, the hunger to know someone sexually is to hunger to know and be known by that person humanly. Food without nourishment doesn't fill the bill for long, and neither does sex without humanness. The habitual misuse of sex helps you to lose the appreciation of its goodness. And what's the classic example of this? Pornography. Rebecca DeYoung, in the book, The Glittering Vices, tells the story of a young blogger who's struggling with pornography. He says, as a struggling porn addict myself, I know that the, that the um, producers of pornographic films said, I know what they said about porn getting more and more brutal on the women, and it's true, it will only get worse. There's something about human nature that gets desensitized to the ordinary. Lust seeks pleasure as a means of escape. It seeks something to nurse the pain. It's rarely about sex. It's a nursing mechanism for deeper pain. It's an escape. Love always seeks the person as the end, not the pleasure. To enjoy them. To come together relationally. That's the beauty of sexuality. That's why it's so good. Love seeks the person at the end. And that's the danger of porn. Not only can it potentially change your brain chemistry so that you have endorphins that make you high and opiates that make you low, It, it can not only affect your brain chemistry in a very real way, studies have shown, but more dangerous is the way it cuts you off from the person with whom you were supposed to be the most intimate. And if I can um, have you look at your bulletin, I want to be extremely practical today. And so if you look at the back of your bulletin, you'll see the vicious cycle of sexual slavery. When you ask somebody who's struggling with, with the sexual sin, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. Tell me about your prayer life. What is it like? 99 times out of 100, they will say, you know, it's kind of vague. Their answers are vague. Their relationship with God is kind of distilled down. It's just kind of blah. Yeah. 
And when you begin to, to ask them about their prayer life, you know, what's your relationship like with other people? What's your prayer life like? They just kind of give these, you know, typical blow-you-off kind of answers. And there is a real lack of spiritual preparation in their heart. And then when lust or craving or desires come, you're a sitting duck, man. You're duck soup. Because you're going to be stressed out. And you're going to have to nurse that stress in some way. And the stress may be an external stress, like, you know, it may be financial security. Man, I told you to get hot in here. Or relational, um, you know, relational, is it just me? Um, or, you know, or you get rejected socially. Like, there's some kind of stress in your life, right? Some kind of outside stress that makes you want to nurse the pain. That's true for many people. That's the reason why they want to nurse their loneliness with pornography or with sexual sin because they're stressed out. But you know what I think it is for most people? They're just bored. Nothing gets their adrenaline up anymore. And so men start clicking around on the internet to get their adrenaline up. They're just bored. Life is so boring that the only thing that gets my adrenaline up is this. And the adrenaline that brings you up and the opiates that bring you down, it's kind of like a double pleasure. And so men are sitting ducks, and many women are too. They nurse their stress through the easy, easy nursing of that stress through illicit sexual activity like looking at porn or committing adultery or fill in the blank. Three, I think the stress doesn't just come from external stress and it's not just because you're bored, but for some people... It's just a lack of purpose. They just don't know what their purpose is in life. And so maybe somebody will care about me if I do something really stupid. That sounds dumb, but that actually happens a lot. You want to be wanted so bad, you do something that is totally foolish. And you never think about the repercussions of it. You nurse that stress. Then you give in to self-gratification. And then you get into this vicious cycle of guilt and shame and withdrawal from God and from others. And it just continues again and again and again. Do you see how this vicious cycle of sexual slavery works? Does it make sense? It's very, very powerful in its vortex to suck you in. And when you struggle with lust or when you struggle with illicit sex or you have problems with sexual immorality that Paul talks about in this verse, lust is not a sin of malice. It's not like you go to the internet and say, I really want to dominate over a woman by looking at images of her. I want to dominate over a man by looking at images of him. That's never the way. And you never say, I really want to harm my relationship to my wife or my relationship to my husband. It's not a sin of malice. It is almost always, except in the most sadistic and gross of cases, it is almost always a sin of weakness. It's a sin of vulnerability. And therefore, those of you who are single, brothers and sisters, you've got to have people in your life who love you and know you. It would be wonderful if it was your parents, but I know that's kind of weird to talk about these things with your mom and dad. People who know you can talk about these things together, and they can help you when you're vulnerable. They know you're vulnerable at these particular situations, and they can help you grow stronger because of the community. I have found personally that it is not internet filters that help you with this particular area of your life, at least personally. You know what helps me the most? Friendships. Friendships with my wife, primarily. 
and friendships with other people. Husbands and wives, do you talk together about when, husbands, you're most vulnerable? Do you talk about sex in your marriage, or is that kind of a taboo thing? You should talk about it. Because if you don't, you will find a way to nurse that stress somehow. And we could line people up and they could tell stories. Sex is as much social as it is physical. Thirdly, sex isn't just created good and to be enjoyed. Sex isn't just as much social as it is physical. But sex is also as much spiritual as it is physical. Did you know that? Sex is just a faint echo of the joy that you will experience in glory before Jesus Christ himself. It is, it is just a foretaste of what it's going to be like when God makes all things new. I mean, will it be fun in heaven? I guess if you want to use the word fun, I'd say so. I mean, sex is as much a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church, as it is about making babies. It was God's gift to remind us of his incredible love for us. One uh, psychologist, John White, uh, said it this way. He said, erotic pleasure is the most superficial benefit of sex. It is a delight, but only the delight of a moment. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies it can be profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. It, as uh, I look tenderly, or it symbolizes the uncoverings of our inner selves and our deepest fears and yearnings. As I look tenderly on the body of another, as I experience what it is to feel the tenderness of another's caresses, gosh, it's getting hot, and the delight of knowing I am loved as well as loving, it seems momentarily impossible to separate myself from my body. So much as I am a bodily creature that the one who accepts my body caresses also with the tenderness of my inmost being points to something more than what's going on here. The Greek philosopher Aristophanes said, No one would think that mere sex is the reason each lover takes so great a deep joy in being with the other. It's, it's obvious that the soul of every lover longs for something more. His soul cannot say what it is, but like an oracle, it has a sense of what it wants and yearns for. Like an oracle, it lies behind, hidden behind a riddle. How do you break out of this? How do you break out of this vicious cycle of sexual slavery? How do you see that sex is not just a beautiful thing created good to be shared within the confines of marriage? But for those of you who are struggling, how do you use the resources of the gospel to pull you out of that vicious vortex? Look at the other chart, if you will, on the back of your bulletin. And let's use this as a resource as well. The pathway to sexual freedom. It starts with communion with, in union with Christ and his body. Most people think that if I just am good with God, I'm cool. But you know what? God gives us friendships and he gives us the church to help us understand ourselves in all of our humanness. And the more that you have friends, and the more that you are part of the church and grafted in a community group, people who really know you, the more that you will be in communion and union with Christ because he calls us to be members of one another. We don't strive to know God. 
We are known by him. We are in union with him. And God in the gospel not only takes away all of our guilt, but you know what else he takes away? Our shame. Guilt is always engulfed in a much larger problem. Shame. Most of us don't have a problem getting rid of our guilt for things we've done in the past, but you know what stays with us in our Christian life? The shame of what we've done. That was the thing that Augustine brought into his own Christian life. It was the shame of having a son. It physically followed him around. There's an interview on Netflix about, with all the captains of the Star Trek Enterprise, of the USS Enterprise, all the Star Trek captains, and they interviewed uh, Patrick Stewart. Do you remember, um, oh, um, you know, Jean, uh, what is his name, Jean? Yes, thank you. So, so they interviewed, and they asked him, you know, tell us about your childhood. And he said that he grew up in an abusive home, that his dad went off to war, and he came back, and he was abusive to his mom. And he grew up his entire life with this incredible guilt. But he said the thing that really made me struggle, it's a fascinating interview, you can see it on Netflix, the thing that really made me struggle, that I still struggle with today, is not the guilt of what happened because I didn't do it, but it was the shame that all of my neighbors knew that my parents screamed at each other and fought for years. And it was the shame that other people were looking at me and they knew. The power of shame when it comes to sexual immorality is heavier than the power of the guilt. Because shame enshrouds guilt. But the gospel, guilt says, I did that. But shame says, everybody's looking at me, and they know. And you know what the gospel says? The gospel doesn't just take away your guilt, brothers and sisters. It also takes away your shame. It takes away your shame because Christ bore that shame on the cross for you so that when God looks at you he doesn't see shame for you he sees spotless pure blameless Blake Altman in all of the wonderful righteousness of Jesus Christ none of my filthy rags he takes away the shame when you are growing in the Christian life if you're going to break out of this cycle you've got to be in communion and union with other people you've got to see that the gospel does take away that shame in order for that to happen, you have to see how you've got to address the heart issue. You've got to address the heart. You can't just address the sin on the surface. It's not the shark's fin that's the problem. It's the 900-pound shark beneath the water surface that is really the issue. You've got to have a game. Uh, you've got to have a plan. The chart that I showed you earlier is one very powerful tool for how to have a plan. Seeing that it's not just the clicking of an image on the internet or a horrible decision to have sex outside of marriage. But it is seeing the pattern of idolatry beneath that sin. That is where the real root is. When, I, when we bought our house, one of the first things I did is I picked weeds in my yard. And I picked them, most of them I picked by hand because I was dumb and a city boy and I didn't know any different. And I would sit out there for hours picking these weeds. And you know what? I picked... I picked a lot of weeds and I just ripped off the leaves at the top. And you know what happened? They just grew back. 
That's the way confession is oftentimes. You know, okay, I yelled at Lauren. Man, God, I'm so sorry. And then, you know what, the next Tuesday I do it again. And it's a hypothetical example because the real root that I need to be confessing to the Lord is, why is it that I always have to have things my way? Why is it that at the root of my sin is this incredible lust for control? That is where I need to relax. And that is where I need to rest in the gospel, that it's enough for me. You have to learn to repent of the whys of your behavior, not of the what's. And when you can repent of the motives, you're beginning to understand true repentance. Repentance is repentance of the whys, not the what's. If you get the why, if you get the root, the petals are going to come. The what will come with it. Now notice also, three, you have to have a prayerful readiness for your circumstances. Every coach of every team, Bob Stoops doesn't go into a game. Mike Gundy does not go into a game without a clear game plan. You've got to have a game plan. You've got to get some friends, first of all. That's game plan number one. Have meaningful relationships with other human beings who know you and care for you. Get involved in a community group if you're not in one. Come to weekly prayer and practice what it means to pray for the idols of your heart together. Get a hobby. Get out in the community and have a purpose and mission to help other organizations besides just sitting around bored all day. Have a game plan. And two, learn to ask good questions that diagnose your heart. Address issues of the heart. For example, what are the specific situations and times at which the temptation draws near to you? Do you know the answer to those questions? When you go on a trip, don't say, okay, would you please pray for my struggle with pornography? It's a perfectly legitimate thing to ask prayer for. But instead, poise your prayer request like this. I'm going on a trip, and I tend to make that trip all about me. Would you please pray that I rest in the gospel this trip? The first question about pray that I don't you know, click on or look at you know, the TV in the hotel room is a good prayer, but it addresses the what. If you talk about help it not be about me, it addresses the underlying comfort that you seek. It's actually a more robust thing to be praying for because it actually addresses the why of it, not just the what of the particular circumstance. Know how to ask good questions of your heart. Know how to have people who you can ask to pray for you. Have a game plan. Some of you need to get a filter on your internet. You need to do it. You've got to protect yourself, especially those of us who have kids or are getting older. Man, I tell you, by the time they're eight years old, those, the guys who run that industry know how to get people early. They will find your children. It's not to make you freak out and be scared. It's just the truth. And so you've got to be able to protect them and shepherd them in a real way to help them understand the dynamics of the gospel and how the temptations are not to be given into when they are so easily received. Practice sobriety. At some point, you have to just say no. Like, you can pray all you want, but at some point, you have to say, I am not going to click that mouse. I am not going to call that number. I am not going to do it. You have to practice sobriety. And the truth about sexual immorality, especially pornography, I know I'm focusing on porn for a second because it's the 
best illustration for it right now, is that you can't just quit alcoholism cold turkey because you could die. You can't just quit your bulimia or anorexia because you have to eat. But you know what you can quit cold turkey? You can quit sexual immorality cold turkey. You will not die. You're going to think you will, but you won't. You have to practice sobriety. You have to just say no. You have to be in community. Like I said, friends, more than anything else has helped me in this area. John Owen wrote in the 17th century about the glory of Christ. And if you regularly behold the glory of Christ, our Christian walk with God would become so sweet and pleasant that our spiritual light and strength would grow daily stronger and our lives would more gloriously represent the glory of Christ and death would be most welcome to us. The way you run from sexual immorality is to run toward God's goodness and you run toward his best for your life. You've got to keep running toward his best or you will be duck soup. You've got to keep a big vision of God's glory present along your frontal lobe. Always. That's what you're living for. And then lastly, it says in this chart, you have to move toward God and others. You move toward God and others in ministry and in service to other people. All right, the, the hour's late. Let me, let me close this down and let me use a friend to illustrate um, this final point. This is something that he wrote. There are times when I hear a sermon that deals with the chaste ethic that we Christians are called to. And as new creatures in Christ, we're capable of. And that same night, I go hang out with a girl that heard the same sermon and we got sensual and sexual. He writes, I'm dealing with 17 other things in my Christian walk right now. Shouldn't I just focus on learning to pray and deal with the sex stuff later? I became a Christian as an adult after I was already sexually active. And now I have to deal with the fact that I am already, that I already have a mark against me before I even get out of the starting gate. Anybody relate to that kind of pain? C.S. Lewis understood it. There's a place in mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis, after talking at length about sexual morality, he says he comes unglued on people who think that sexual immorality is a worse sin than other sins. If anyone thinks, Lewis says, that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are not the the worst of all sins. Lewis says, all the worst pleasure are purely spiritual. The pleasures of putting people other, other people in the wrong, the pleasures of bossing and patronizing and being a spoiling sport and the backbiting, the pleasures of power and of hatred, those are horrible. Thus, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may, in fact, be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Recurring sin like sexual immorality, just like we talked about last week, like foolish talking, like coarse joking, like materialism. It takes time to unlearn, friends. But God has given us each other to help us unlearn it together with the resources of the gospel. Paul says that those who commit these acts are 
viable candidates for the wrath of God. That means if they continue to persist in these acts of disobedience, they show themselves to not be part of the covenant community of faith because the gospel never dropped in the first place. It remained merely intellectual. It never gripped their heart. Has the gospel gripped you? If it has, then the breadth of the application of the gospel goes far deeper and into far more intimate areas of your life then you may be willing to recognize or admit or be willing to allow it to come in, but you need to. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, through the sound of my voice, is telling you there is hope for repentance. Because your Savior knows your shame, and he loves you. And he has held out for you what it means to be human and the good life And he wants you to walk in it in light of your new identity in Christ. It doesn't mean you won't struggle. The mark of Christianity is not victory. It is struggle. If you quit struggling, that means you're dead. Do you struggle together? Do you need to have conversations with your spouse? Some of you may. Do you need to confess before the Lord? And do you need to move to repentance even toward those in your family? Allow the Holy Spirit to marinate the gospel around your heart. This is a solemn warning. Therefore, let your father dry your tears. You're his child, and repentance is not a weakness. It is a glorious strength. Move toward your father who opens up his arms to love you. And to show you the beauty of what sex is in light of his creational purpose within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Let's pray together that the Lord would help us to be that kind of community. Father, would you take this very difficult aspect of our Christian walk and would you heal us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Lord Christ, for those men in this room who have struggled with internet pornography for years, Lord, I pray that you will allow them to be honest about that and to get the help they need. Lord, help us to be a church that is, that there are no sins off limits in terms of what we are willing to confess and repent of. Lord, we are all fellow strugglers. Lord, help us, therefore, the power of your Holy Spirit to have a big view of your glory, that you want what is best for us, and therefore, to help us live out the positive aspects of the gospel, our identity, our acceptance, our protection under King Jesus, our inheritance with Jesus, our elder brother, and also be able to put off those things that do not mark saints, and in so doing, give us the joy, the joy of knowing that you lived the life we could not live, and you died the death for us that we should have died. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.